I am the hands. I am the feet. I am heart. I am church. Today I get the wonderful pleasure of continuing on the series that we're in for January, which is looking at the church and uh, its significance. And today we're going to look at one question specifically, which is why, why church? Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's this one song that we sing that has, I think, quite a peculiar and, or odd lyric. Um, it's a song called The Creed. You know, I believe in God our Father, I believe in Christ the Son. Most of us should know it. we sing it often here. Um, if you don't know, that song is based off of a, a creed that was written by the early church in the mid-third century um, that talks about, um, basically, they're trying to lay out the borderlines or like the core essence of faith. And so they pick up on some wonderful things. They pick up on believing God, the Father, the creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Christ, his son, uh, who is both God, fully God, but also fully man. We also believe in the Holy Spirit who, who filled Jesus while he was on earth and fills us today. I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in the resurrection. I believe in life eternal. And there's all this great lyrics. But amidst this whole song, there's this one phrase which is a little odd, which is, I believe in your holy church. You ever thought about that as an odd lyric to chuck into everything else? Everything else in that song is these big ethereal concepts about God and the nature of Christ being fully God, fully man, and born of a virgin, and we're going to be resurrected and one day live eternally. And then there's this odd line about the church. Everything else is amazing, and then there's, I mean, I guess I believe in the church. It's all right. I go there on Sunday. It's nice. People are cool. It's an odd lyric to chuck in and wonder why do we, in the same breath that we confess our belief in God and the resurrection, do we also confess our belief in his church? And when you add to that a few uh, wider sociodynamics, it makes it an even more interesting question. Uh, globally, Christianity is still growing, um, but in most Western countries, it's actually on the decline. Um, in the 2013 census that was done here in New Zealand, it was the first time in the nation's history where self-identifying Christians tipped under 50%. In 2013, it was at 47% of self-identifying Christians. So for the first time, we slipped under the halfway mark. And this trend is quite similar for America, um, UK, Australia, um, most of Western Europe. In all these Western nations, Christianity's on a decline, numbers are dwindling, churches are closing, and it makes you wonder why do we believe in the church when it doesn't seem to be doing so well where we're from. And then on top of that, you've got the other added element, which is the rise in technology, which makes everything a whole lot more complicated. Because before, if you wanted to hear the gospel or hear someone preach or you know, hear some worship music or hear, be a part of some of those things, you had to go to your local church. But nowadays, you can get all that online. I mean, you can find the best speakers in the world and sit down and listen to the most inspirational messages, and you don't even have to put pants on. Like, you can eat cereal with no pants and hear the greatest messages that are being preached around the world. That's a pretty good deal, you know? And it, say you wanted to hear some music or sing along with some music, you could come to church where we kind of work through and try to do covers of some of these songs, 
Or you could just get the Hillsong DVDs that they recorded professionally with thousands of people in this amazing uh, stadium with worship sets that were planned meticulously with lights and sound and lyrics and the top of the top, the cream of the cream musicians all gathering together in this amazing thing. And you can be a part of that experience and still not have pants on. That's pretty good. So why would you need to bother with getting up early on a Sunday morning, pushing through, coming to a building that sometimes doesn't have his air conditioning working, to hear things that don't quite seem as good as Andy Stanley or sound as good as Hillsong? Why the church? And now these trends can often lead to two feelings within people that I've noticed really commonly, which is either anxiety or apathy. Anxiety is quite common. What it sounds like is when we look at church decline and we see what churches have to compete with, people begin to get anxious and think, oh, we've got we've to fix this. We've got to do something about this. So we'll, uh, we'll invest in a better projector and we'll try and hire a better singer and uh, we'll work harder to try and get our messages done and we'll try and get everything online to look really cool and really flash and we'll move forward because the reason people don't like the church is it's too old and fuddy-duddy. So we'll just kick it, force it forward, kicking and screaming into the 21st century, and that will save it. Or you get the other side of anxiety, which is all this new stuff is ruining the church. So let's go back to what made it great in the 60s and the 70s and the charismatic renewal, and let's open up the scripture and song books, and we'll just sing those, and Christ will return. You know, there's this anxiety that makes us feel like we need to go one way or the other because we have to fix the church. Or you get apathy, which is, eh, I mean, I could go to church, but probably just listen to this online. I can listen to Stephen Furtick. He's a great preacher. Listen to one of the songs, then go out to the beach. And I get, you know, the community that I need to from like the rugby rugby club or, you know, from people around. I've got some good families and home groups, so I probably don't need to go to church too much. And so if it declines too much or if we're starting to see a drop in numbers, eh, it's probably just the way it's going to go, really. Just move into the future. We'll just watch everything online. It'll be fine. And you've got these two, these two responses that are really easy. And in the middle of it, we've got this creed where in the same breath that we, can, we confess our belief in God, Jesus, and the Spirit, we're also confessing our belief in the church. And it's an odd dynamic. And today, what I'm hoping for us to do is to regain a little bit of that theological vision, that, that underpinning that fills throughout the Bible of why we believe, we confess that we believe in the church. And I think one of the greatest images that we have for that is the church as the bride of Christ. And we're going to be looking at this image of the church as the bride because it presents that there's something bigger, there's something deeper than just what we see on a Sunday. It's more than just attending services. It's more than just going through the motions. There's something, there's something theological, there's something faith-filled that undergirds all of it, which is why when we sing that song, we sing our belief in that. And the bride helps us to discover that. The other thing I'm going to be doing today is we talk about the bride. Um, Last week, Craig shared this amazing image where he talked about in church life, you've got the ideal, which is what everybody would imagine is the perfect church. But then you've also got the real, which is all the annoying people we got to deal with on a Sunday. And Craig said maturity is being found in the tension between those two things, not collapsing into one or the other. And so what I'm going to try and do today is push us outwards both ways so that we can find that middle place of maturity even deeper. So as we get into that, let me pray. Lord, as we come around your word today, and as we look at this image of your church as your bride, I pray that your spirit would speak to us, 
that you would bring things to life in us, that you would reveal to us your truth. That in the same way you have raised Christ from the dead and you've revealed to us and we know that Christ is alive and reigning with you, I pray that you would reveal to us your plan for your church, your people, and your kingdom here on earth. In your name we pray. Amen. So we're talking about the church as the bride. And now the first thing we're going to look about the bride, one thing that, a theme that follows through all of scripture, is that the bride is chosen. She's chosen by God. Um, In the 18th century, there was this image that became really popular of talking about God. They talked about God as like the, the grand watchmaker. So he made the earth and he set everything up and he wound it all up with all the gears so that it would work perfectly. And then once it was wound up at the beginning of creation, he just, he let it go. And now the world is just going on its way as God kind of takes a few steps back and watches it happen. It was an incredibly popular way of looking at God, and in some ways it still persists today. The thing is, it's completely unbiblical. It has no bearing because God is not a detached God. He doesn't step three steps back from his creation and watch, watch things happen. Instead, God is constantly active and interacting with us. And so one of the key features we see about God's interacting is that he always chooses to work with humanity. He always chooses to have a people for himself. Early, early in Genesis, we see God interact with Abraham. And there's not much that we know about Abraham beforehand. There's not like a prelude saying, Abraham was a nice dude. Abraham was God-fearing. Abraham liked God. Instead, you're just kind of thrust into the story as it says, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Now I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will end up being blessed, blessed through you. From the very beginning, God chose Abraham. And he chose to work through Abraham so that all of humanity would be blessed through his people. The same theme carries through once Abraham's people developed and you, get, you gain the nation of Israel. When they were in Egypt, God said to them, I am the Lord and will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Again, you see this instance where Israel wasn't doing much to garner God's favor. They weren't particularly amazing, just like Abraham wasn't particularly amazing. But instead, God said, I choose you. You will be my people, and I will be your God. And this theme carries right the way through. In the New Testament, Paul is writing to the Ephesians about the same thing, a God who chooses us. And he says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Again, saying to the church, God has chosen us. The bride is chosen. 
And now when you start off saying that, it's really easy to be like, well, okay, cool. Glad he chose us. But what it means is really, it's foundational. And if you miss this foundationally, everything else goes wrong. Because we need to understand that God has chosen the church. And what that means is, what brought the church into creation? What brought her about? It wasn't human interaction. It wasn't humans coming together and saying, hey, we should be a people of God and we could do some cool things. No, the church only exists because God has called her out. The church only survives because God sustains her. And the church's future only exists because God has chosen a place for her. And it's so foundational. Everything we do from that needs to stem from this idea that God has chosen the church. And this is why. Because it's really easy to think of the church as a social club. You know, like nowadays, when I talk to other non-Christians and they ask me about how things are going, it's really easy for them to understand, well, okay, yep, I'm part of a rugby club, so I pay my donations there, and I get to have my say, and, you know, I get to do some fun things there, and that's about it. And so when they think about the church, they assume it's the same way. Well, you come, you come on a Sunday, you come weekly, you pay your donations, you get to have your say when we do our members meeting, and then you go on your way. But the problem with that view is it puts a lot of anxiety when things aren't going well. I don't know if you've ever been part of a smaller church, but in, when you're part of a smaller church and things aren't going well, and there's not a lot of people to help sustain or buoy it, you end up feeling that pressure on yourself. You ever been one of those families? As a pastor or as an elder being a part of a small church, and as you see numbers declining or things not going well, you sit there and you're like, we've got to fix this. Everything's going to die if I don't do something. If, if I leave, this whole thing's going to fall apart. If we stop doing this, this whole church is going to cease to be. This all depends on me. But the whole point of understanding the part of the bride is that the church rests not on our shoulders. When we look at church decline in New Zealand, absolutely there's things we need to do better. Absolutely there's things we need to change. But we can have faith even if numbers drop and even if the whole world looks at us and says the church is dying, the church is dead, the church is a thing of the past, you know that's okay because we worship a God who gets out of death pretty well. Because the church doesn't rest on us. It rests on him. And if you follow this out, so that's a foundational thought, the church rests on God, not on us. It then means that we, the church doesn't belong to us. We don't own it. Instead, we belong to the church, and the church belongs to him. There's this sense of us being owned by his people. We're a part of something bigger than ourselves. It's not just us putting it together because we think it's a good idea. And when we have membership meetings in here, as a church and decide where is God leading us. It's not us just coming together to pitch in all of our good ideas and say, well, this seems good. It's us coming together to say, what is Christ doing amongst us? And together we say, I think Christ is calling us this way. It's, it's subtle, but it's profound. Because if you go the other way, you end up going off on tangents thinking everything depends upon me. Instead, it depends upon him. She's chosen. So that's the ideal. Now we're going to push this way. The other image of the church is that she is being prepared. She's still getting, still getting there. At the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 19, right near the end of the book, 
There's this amazing picture of when Christ returns, and it's glorious and beautiful. It's Christ coming down from the heavens, riding this white horse with armies of angels on either side of him. It's glorious. And it says there, hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb, who is Jesus, has come. And his bride, who is the church, has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given for her to wear. It's this beautiful image of this church, ready, glorious, waiting with her arms ready as her her husband comes down to be with her. It's beautiful. But it's also at the end of the Bible. It's at the end of all those things. If you go back to the origins and the starting places of some of those things, she's not quite so gorgeous. Um, One of the earliest records that we actually have of the Bible referring to God's people as a woman or as a church or as a bride comes from the Old Testament prophet Hosea. And what was happening in, this Israel, in Israel at the time was Israel had gone off and was worshiping other gods. And it wasn't just the fact that they were worshiping other gods, but worshiping other gods meant trusting on other nations and other peoples for her survival. And the whole point of Israel was they trusted on God alone for military provision, for rains, for food. Everything depended upon God. And instead, Israel kept on turning to other gods, other nations, other peoples to satisfy her wants and her desires. And so God told this prophet Hosea, Hosea, I want you to marry this adulterous woman who is named Gomer. I want you to marry her and bring her into your household. I want you to have kids with her. And when you do this, she's not going to stay faithful to you. She's going to keep going out and finding other lovers. She's going to keep finding other men, and she's going to continue to sleep with them. I want you to stay married to her, and I want you to continue to love her. Because this physical action that Hosea did became this amazing, um, profound, prophetic act of what Israel was doing with God. Though Israel kept on turning, 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 God was faithful and still wanted to love her and was calling her back. And it writes in there, talking about Israel, Mother has been unfaithful. She's conceived them or her children in disgrace. She said, I'll go after my lovers who give me my food. They give me my water. They gave me my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. She's not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which she used for bail. There's this image of this church that though God wants her to be faithful to him, instead she compromises herself for safety, for security, to look like other people, to have what other people have, and to just be like all the other nations. Sounds like not much has changed, really, in a couple thousand years. You see this play on further. In the New Testament, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and uh, the issue that he's having there is there's these guys who are calling themselves the super apostles. So Paul's like the apostle, and these guys have come through calling themselves the super apostles, and they're they're like physically really big and really intimidating. They got ripped abs and they're amazing orators. So when they speak, everyone was just, their minds were blown. And they came proclaiming this like gospel 2.0. Like you heard the first gospel from Paul, but now we are the super apostles who are going to bring you the new and improved gospel. And it's really exciting. And it was really, it, you know, it was a lot of self-fulfillment. And the Corinthians felt really important because they got to be privileged by the special knowledge of the super apostles and the new and improved gospel. And so Paul writes to them saying, something important. Something so important. Ha, there we go. Paul writes, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. 
I've promised you to one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Again, the early church is seduced by self-importance, selfishness, a love of ego, and a love of power to turn away from God and to turn to other things. Again, it sounds like in some places, not much has changed. See, the reason that we talk about her being prepared is it's so important for us to acknowledge that she is not perfect and she's in the process of getting there. I remember uh, one time, I've mentioned a few times, I grew up in Mexico and my, my dad was a pastor and there was this one church we were pastoring. And I remember there was this one prayer meeting which will always stick out in my mind. Uh, it, was, it was a more affluent church in Mexico. We were pastoring two churches at the time. One was poor and one was more affluent. And uh, this was the affluent church we were, pre- we were pastoring. And we went there for a prayer meeting. And uh, there were some lovely people there, but, you know, they had some egos and some pride. And there was some fighting that was going on and, you know, little slights that had been building up. And so they get up for this prayer meeting. And I kid you not, this one lady get up, gets up to pray. She goes up to the microphone and she says a prayer like this. She says, God... I want to thank you because you are faithful and you protect your faithful servants even when they have enemies around them who tell lies about them and who speak ill of them. And even though that family is sometimes so close they're within the room, I thank you that you will vindicate me and you will show me to be pure and that the other person's mouths will be silenced in your name, Jesus. At which point everyone's starting to feel awkward. Like It wasn't a big church. It was like maybe 60 to 80 people. Not a lot of room for hiding, which obviously the other woman who was being talked about in there felt. She could have stayed silent, and the rest of us could have all pretended that didn't happen and walk away like, ah, that was good prayer. Nope, nope. From her seat, she gets up without the microphone because she's that kind of lady and says, well, I thank God that he understands the truth of what's happening rather than man's lies. And he will vindicate me and he will bring truth to show that my side of what happened, at which point the lady on the microphone started praying louder, which caused this lady to pray louder, which caused this lady to move up to the front of the church. And before you know it, it was a Jeremy Kyle episode as these two women were pray shouting at each other. And then there's like 40, 50 other people there like, And so my dad gets up in a hurry and has to go and physically separate these women and get them to each sit down. And uh, I just remember one of the funniest things about it is my dad, I mean, he speaks Spanish incredibly well, but he learned it as an adult. So, I mean, he was still finding his way. And bless his heart, Spanish on its own can be spoken quite quickly. But when you get two angry Hispanic women shouting at each other, it moves into warp speed. And my poor father could not keep track. So he goes and gets these women and sits them down, says this quick prayer to finish the meeting. Then go leans over to my mom, who's a native Spanish speaker, and leans over and says, what did they say? <laughs> and it was, it's always stuck with me. The church is not perfect. It's not. There are, there are things we get wrong all the time. There are things that we as Bethlehem Baptists get wrong. There are things we don't necessarily do well. There are people that we have unintentionally pushed away or pushed aside, and we haven't meant to, but we are imperfect people coming together to try and worship a perfect God. And the reason it's so important for us to acknowledge this and for us to say this is because it needs to fit within our vision of the church, and it needs to fit within our understanding of the church. 
Because if it doesn't, and if we think the church is perfect and all of our hopes and dreams are going to be fulfilled as soon as we walk through these doors, then when eventually something goes wrong, or when someone hurts us or we feel kind of slighted or pushed aside, then our whole vision of church will fall apart because there's no space in our head for imperfection. We, we project this perfect image of the church, and when it doesn't meet that, we just give up church altogether. I'm sure you've met those people. Some of you in this room at some time in your life may have been one of those. At, at the hands of someone in the church, an elder, a pastor, a worship leader, another member, your small group leader, your best friend, something happened, miscommunication happened, and then walls were built up, and then you were angry at one another, and so then you left, and left the church for years and years and years because they said, well, you know what, everybody there is all hypocrites, and none of that's true, so I'm just going to leave. What that shows is that there wasn't a big enough vision and understanding of what the church is. Yes, we get things wrong, but she is being prepared. She's being made ready. The other thing that's important to know about this is that she has to, in some sense, she has to be not perfect, because if she were perfect, then none of us would be able to be in here. Not one of us would be able to join her, because as soon as one of us did, they'd ruin it. You'd ruin it. You'd ruin it. I'd ruin it, probably quicker than most of you. So she needs to be non-perfect because she's being prepared by Christ. And that's the second thing that's so important to know is that she's not being prepared by us. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's an amazing theologian and pastor uh, who worked during the rise of Nazi Germany in the 1930s and was eventually killed by the Nazi party in the 1940s for standing up for the gospel and for faith. And he wrote quite a bit about the church in, the, in this period. And one of the most amazing things he said is that the greatest danger to the church and the greatest threat to the church doesn't come from the outside. The greatest threat to the church comes from our own perfect vision of the church that we try to bring to her. Because he said, as soon as we try to bring that, we assume it's our job to fix her. It's our job single-handedly to make her into what we think she should be in our mind. And as we do that, we're working against what Christ is doing. Because Christ's vision of the church is different from ours. It is because we're imperfect people. And God is doing something beautiful. Instead, Paul points it in such a different direction. When writing about this process, Paul says, Husband, love your wives just as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her. He, was, he wants to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle, or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Christ is the one who's perfecting the church, not you, not me. Now, the way this works out is, again, remember these feelings of anxiety as we hear numbers about church decline, or as we look online and see how the other great churches are doing it, or we look into Hollywood and we say, oh man, look at how they're doing their audio visuals, or we look into music and say, look how the band's pulling together their music this way. It's so easy for us to try and connect those dots, and we say, well, the world is doing this, and we're getting all these outside voices saying how the church needs to get better. Oh, we'll fix it. Well, this is how the church needs to improve. This is how the church needs to get better. This is what we need to do. What Paul is saying is that the most challenging and terrifying word that comes to the church doesn't come from the outside. 
but it comes from the inside. The most challenging word to the church comes from Christ. His words are the ones that will cut us to the core. Because truth be told, it's pretty easy to get a new projector. It's easy to get a new guitar amp. It's easy to revamp our facilities if that's what we think needs to make the church better. Christ's challenges are a lot tougher to deal with. Love your neighbor as yourself. The first will be last, and the last will be first. Take the plank out of your own eye before you worry about the speck in your brother's eye. You hear those words from Christ, those are the ones that are going to perfect our church. Yes, we change and we adapt and we want to do things better. There's no doubt about that. But the critique and that change and that movement needs to always come from him, not from the outside. It's the reason why every Sunday when we gather, we gather around his word and we gather around the scriptures because through them, Christ is preparing us. Christ is forming us in ways so much deeper than our facilities or our programs. It's a change of the heart. The church is being prepared. The final image, that's not the final image. Final image might show up in a little bit, but the final image is that she is beautiful. She is so beautiful. Hey, there she is. In Revelation, we had that amazing picture where Christ comes down and the church is covered in fine linen and robes, which are the righteous acts of the saints. And it's beautiful. The church is beautiful not because of our facilities, not because of the great things we do for the world. The church is beautiful because of who God calls her to be. In Ephesians 3, Paul is talking to the church and he says, And although I am least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. Now he listened to this, this mystery. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. The manifold wisdom and glory and power of God is going to be made known through his church. And now the way Paul works this out in this whole letter is he's talking about how Jews and Gentiles, which used to be separated by food laws and by society, they never interacted, they had to be kept separate. You couldn't even go inside of one another's houses. What Paul is saying is that Christ has now eliminated that dividing wall. And these two groups of people who were forever alienated and separate are now coming together around one table. And at this table, they have the bread and the cup, which is Christ. And around Christ, they are all being made one. What Paul is saying is that that reveals the glory of God to the world. The early church, when they celebrated together, when the rich and the poor sat down at one table, when the slave man and the free sat down at one table, when the Jews and the Gentiles sat down next to one table, when the Romans and the Greeks all sat down at one table around this one cup and loved one another, this revealed the glory of God to the world because nothing else in society was like that. No one would have done that. No self-respecting aristocrat or rich person would allow himself to be serving a slave. What a humiliating experience. 
But the church says, no, we are all one under Christ. And this reveals what God wants to do throughout the whole world, the gospel, which is God drawing all things together to himself under Christ. And you want to know what that looks like? Come to the church, and you get to see the beginnings of that. Jesus says it in a slightly different way. At the very end of the Gospel of John, he's giving uh, his challenge to his disciples, and he says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Have you ever thought about that as an evangelism strategy? It often doesn't get picked up. When we talk, I mean, Alpha, it's going to be wonderful, and we need to do all the work that we can. But have you also thought that one of the most key and important things that we do to make Alpha work is to make sure that this environment, us together, represents God's love? That we love one another as Christ has loved us, serving each other sacrificially, listening to each other, preferring the other over ourselves. What Jesus is saying is that when people walk into a room like that, after they've heard what they've heard about Alpha, and then they come here and they experience that, they cannot help but say, there is something different about this people. Not because of who they are, but because of who their God is. The church is beautiful because she represents what God wants to do with all of creation, everything being brought together under Christ. I'm just going to finish here. It's, um, I think it's easy, as I, I share a message like this, it's easy, I think, to be in the crowd and think, well, you have to say that you're a pastor, right? <laughs> you must love the church. You must wake up at like 6 a.m. every morning being like, yeah, church! No, I mean, Craig's like that, obviously, um, without a doubt. I don't know that I have reached the same levels of holiness. No, to, to be honest, I feel like I've been to church services more than any human should ever have to. Um, I feel like I've heard more sermons than any human should have to endure. Um, and you know, there were periods in my childhood where we went to church services every single night because we were trying to get this established. So Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, repeat, repeat, trying to get things on. So every night I'm sitting there like, oh, I don't want to be here anymore. You know, and then there was a period where we were pastoring two churches at once. And so my Sunday as like a nine-year-old kid would look like wake up at 6 a.m., go drive halfway across the city to where the church is going to meet, set up all the chairs, set up all the tables, set up the sound system, set up the, uh, the Sunday school room, get that all ready, do the church service, and then when the church service finishes, allow my parents to talk for 3,000 years while every single person talked to them and we left the church. Any other young people feel that? I felt that because they had to talk to everybody, and now my poor son is going to say that to me. And so they would talk for years, and then finally the last person would leave, and then we'd have to pack all the chairs down, put away all the sound system, put away the Sunday school stuff, and then we'd get in our car, and we'd drive across the city another direction, and we'd stop for the most beautiful lunch where we'd have Carl's Jr., and that was the highlight of the day. <laughs> then we'd get back in the car, and we'd drive to the next church, and we would do it all again. And so twice every Sunday, that would be the full Sunday. That was my whole weekend. Locked in. And so then I went off to join Youth with a Mission, not because I was like, I love church, but because I was like, I don't want to do church. So I'm going to go do something that seems more exciting. I'm going to go do missions and travel. And I ended up playing in a band because I wanted to go hang out in bars and pubs with different people. I was kind of moving away from that standard, just local church perspective. Because I thought it was boring. I thought it was dull. I thought it was outdated. I thought it was going to eventually pass away for something more cool, hip, and alternative to show around, right? 
until I read through Ephesians. And I got hit with this theological vision that goes deeper than our experiences, that goes deeper than us just saying, oh yeah, I attend church on Sundays, in the same way that we say that God is the God of everything, in the same way that we say Jesus is fully God, fully man, who came, lived, and died for the redemption of our bodies and for all of creation, in the same way we say the Holy Spirit is here guiding us and leading us and filling us with his power, is the same way I would say the church is called by God to represent his kingdom to the world as people come around through their differences and join as one family around one table, around one bread, around one cup to proclaim his kingdom in their local context. I can't get away from that because there's this theological truth that I believe in. And so I came here not because, I came here to plant this Golden Sands Church, not because I just want to do what I did to me as a kid. I want to do that to my son. That wasn't the reason. It wasn't because I just want to push my own ego or I just love preaching on a Sunday. It wasn't because I love setting up chairs and I can't wait to do that. No, it wasn't because of any of that. It's because I believe that God wants to do something special in this city. And when I see a new neighborhood that's growing up out of nothing with families coming from all over the country, leaving their support networks to try and move into this new area without connections, without family, without support, working from paycheck to paycheck, just trying to get by, I can see that God is wanting to reach out to them. And he's saying to them, are you weary and tired? Come to me and find rest. Are you lonely and broken? Come into my arms, into the arms of my church and find community. Are you broke? Are you hurt? Come and by my stripes you will be healed. And come to me and you will find meaning in a way you never imagined because God's gospel is taking over. And so I feel called not because I want to do any great things, but because when I look at Golden Sands, I can see that God wants an outpost of his church. Not a bunch of fancy people who've got all the gifts, but a bunch of ordinary people who are committed to loving one another and to making Christ known and their community. And that's something I can believe in. She's chosen. Her life is sustained by God and God alone. She's being prepared. She messes stuff up. She's filled with imperfect people. But she's beautiful. And God wants to use her. So if I can invite the team to come out, I'm just going to pray. I believe in God, our Father, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Christ, his Son, who is very God of God, but who is also fully man, who came, lived, and died for the redemption of our bodies and for all of creation. I believe in his Holy Spirit, which he sends out to fill each and every one of us to draw us to him. And I believe in his church. Let's pray. God, it's easy to, um, I think it's sometimes easier to believe in some of the big things about you, that, you, that you're God, that, that Jesus came and died and lives for us, and, and your spirit is here. Sometimes it's easier to believe in those things because they're a bit more personal or subjective or ethereal, and we can kind of push them out there. Sometimes it's really hard to believe in your church because when we look at the reality around us, we see churches fighting, we see members leave, we see church splits, we see church decline. It's really hard sometimes to believe that you would want to use something as broken or backwards or institutionalized as the church. But God, we also know that you are God 
who loves the least of these, who sees the ordinary and wants to use that to make something extraordinary, who takes the simple and broken things of this world to astound the wise, who takes something as odd as the church and will use it to breathe life and use it to proclaim your gospel message to all the world. Would you help us to understand and see your vision for your church? Would you help us to love your church as you love her? And help us to love one another as you love us. Help us to believe in your church. Amen. Amen.